The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to talk to you this morning about something we need to be thinking about as we enter into this new year, 2016. It's almost impossible to even imagine it's 2016, but it is right around the corner. And I'd like to talk to you about uh, your role in the advance of the gospel and uh, what it is that needs to happen in order for us all to be fruitful in the work of the gospel. This is the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples, and making disciples begins with us sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. And sometimes um, I was reading a, a paper on world evangelism, uh, world mission, uh, very early this morning when it was 27 degrees outside. Is it too warm in here? Everybody's okay? Um, <clears throat> I was reading this, this paper and about the discouragement among a lot of missionaries in some years past where they just didn't see the gospel spreading as they desired to see it spread. And I think all of us uh, sometimes feel that way. We want to see people turning to Christ and coming to faith in him, experiencing salvation, become followers of Jesus Christ. And yet it seems like sometimes our efforts seem, we have no expectations. We're kind of like anybody here see the Fuller Brush Man movie about 50 years ago? (laughs) There was a movie called The Fuller Brush Man. It was Red Skeleton. Anybody know who Red Skeleton is? Yeah, there's a few of you. Well, he used to go to the door. He hated to be a fuller breast salesman, so he'd go to the door and knock, and he would sit there saying, nobody's home, I hope, I hope, I hope. And sometimes we're kind of like that when it comes to sharing the gospel. We're so intimidated. And uh, what I'd like to do today is take a look at a principle that's really wonderful, and that is that God is the one who has to convince the heart of people, not you. You will never uh, gain a, a presentation of the gospel that is going to win anybody's heart. It's the Holy Spirit of God who works in the lives of people to open their eyes to the reality of who Christ is. This morning you heard 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 5, Paul says this, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much full conviction. He's talking about his conviction as he preached the gospel. Much full conviction, just as you know what kind of men, quite literally, what kind of men we became while we were with you for your sake. Now, what's, what he's talking about there is when the gospel is empowering your heart as someone who's sharing it, it changes everything. And so it's not just words, it's the power of the Spirit. In fact, would you turn with me to uh, Luke uh, chapter 24? When Jesus, if you remember in Luke 24, you have the account of him walking on the Emmaus Road for those seven miles with these disciples who are so discouraged because they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, now he's been crucified. And they didn't know they were talking to him as they walked along the road. But then a little bit later, he appears to his disciples. And if you go down a little further, um, let's see, down in, oh, verse, um, verse 36, while they were still telling these things. In other words, these men who had this encounter with Christ, these disciples came back to the other disciples and told them that they had seen Jesus, resurrected Jesus. And they're having a hard time believing it. In verse 36 says, while they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ stood in their midst, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. 
And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they were still, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it. So he spoke to them and then he ate right before their eyes and he ate it before them. And then in verse 44, this is an incredible uh, the next couple of verses, notice. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets that is, and Psalms, that is the entire Old Testament, they, they have to be fulfilled, which included his being crucified and raised from the dead. But then notice what it says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's all you need when you share the gospel. All you need is for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes so that they can see the scriptures. So they can behold Christ in the scriptures. When that takes place, you'll see fruit of the gospel take place. People's hearts will be changed. They'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in apostolic preaching, like you have described there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Um, It always includes the resurrection of Christ, that Christ has been raised from the dead, and judgment, because he's been raised, there is a day of judgment coming, and salvation through faith in his name. That always included that. And so as we share the gospel, we need those basic facts. We need to share the truth of the gospel with people. But we also desperately need the Holy Spirit to open eyes and hearts so that they can see and understand and believe and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, back in Acts chapter 2, that's where we want to camp on today. If you'll turn back there to Acts chapter 2. This, of course, is the day of Pentecost. And in the chapter begins, in fact, this way. When the day of Pentecost had come, 50 days after Passover, Jesus, when Jesus was crucified, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place because that's exactly what Jesus told them to do when he ascended to the Father. He says, go to Jerusalem and stay there until you are are clothed with power from on high, until the Holy Spirit is poured out, because he's going back to the Father to do that very thing. And it says, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves And they rested, these tongues of fire rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages, other tongues. And it goes on to tell how there was a group of people there, Jews that were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they were from other lands and they spoke other languages. And yet they heard these Galileans as they were speaking in these tongues, speaking of the great works of God in Christ Jesus in in their own language. And they were dumbfounded about it. And so what, what happened was it gathered this whole group of people together to find out what was going on. And so they began to wonder, what in the world is happening? And so some of them said, well, they're just drunk. They've had too much wine. And so Peter stands to respond to this. And if you look at verse 14, it says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice 
and declared to them, declared to all these unbelievers, these Jews who had come and gathered because they heard all this commotion. Now, later on, we find there were several thousand. They come, and so he says to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour. It's only 9 a.m. They haven't had enough time to get drunk. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. What you're seeing is what Joel prophesied would happen in the last days. And then he quotes Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even as my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. He says, this is what's happening. This is the beginning of something brand new because Christ has poured out his spirit upon his people. And then a little later on, if you look at verse 22, as he's preaching, there's something about sermons in the New Testament. They're very short. But preachers all believe that that's just a summary of their sermons. They do not believe that you can preach that sort of a sermon and get anywhere. And I agree with them. And so we have a a summary of, of Peter's sermon. And he says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Isn't that interesting? He calls him Jesus the Nazarene. That's where he was from, Nazareth. So he says, this man that you've heard of, Jesus the Nazarene, or actually he was from Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again. You put him to death, but God raised him up again. Putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then he goes on to quote David, how David prophesied that uh, he would not stay in the tomb, that this descendant of David would come out of the tomb. And so in verse 29, uh, Peter says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. And so he preaches this message of the gospel to them. Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ that God promised. And he has died. You put him to death. And he was buried. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. And now he's gone back to the Father, and he's done exactly what he promised. He's poured out his spirit. And they saw these supernatural signs, people speaking in languages they didn't know. And these were Galileans. They were kind of like people from Appalachia that spoke with a real strong accent, and yet they're speaking perfectly in all of these languages around the Roman Empire. It was supernatural. And so Peter says to them in verse 38, repent, and each of you, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 37. Notice what happens. Now, when they heard this, when they heard this sermon, when they heard Peter proclaiming the gospel, they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? I have never had that happen. Their hearts were so gripped by the gospel. The gospel penetrated their hearts. And so they asked him, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified. So here's proof that these sermons are really longer than they appear in the text. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there was added about 3,000 souls. None of us have ever seen that. We've never seen 3,000 people saved in a day. But that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. By the way, the apostles' teaching is wasn't they weren't reading the Bible. They were listening to the apostles teach and they were talking about it. They talk with each other about it. They talk to each other about this message, this apostolic message of the resurrection of Christ. And they were continuing in fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now, what I want you to notice is three things simply in this text, what it reveals about what happens when the gospel comes in power. The gospel comes in power not necessarily when somebody stands before a group and proclaims in a loud voice. The gospel comes in power whenever the Holy Spirit joins with the person who's sharing the gospel, whether it's one-on-one, you talking to a little group of people, or one person, or in a church service where somebody's preaching the gospel, when the Spirit does attend, when the Holy Spirit does come in power like this, there are certain things that happen, and you can tell when the Spirit has come in power. And here's what they are. First of all, when the gospel comes in power, it pierces the hearts of the listeners. This is the most wonderful thing in the world if you've never experienced it when you're sharing the gospel and the person who's hearing you tell them the gospel, and maybe it's in a very truncated way. Maybe you don't feel like you're very good at telling the gospel or the story of Scripture. But when the Spirit brings the power of the gospel to bear on the heart of the person who's hearing it, this is what happens. It it pierces the hearts of the listeners. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? That's how you can tell the gospel has penetrated a person's heart. They actually know there's some way they should respond. And so they ask, what what should I do? This idea of piercing the heart is talking about the gospel message going all the way down into the depths of a person's being a deep emotional pain of remorse. These are the people who were screaming 50 days before, crucify him. And now he's been raised from the dead. And so they were pierced to the heart by this. Peter's preaching of the gospel not only convinced their minds, but it convicted their hearts. And that's, of course, what has to happen to us when we come to faith in Christ. The message has to sink all the way down into the depths of our being. They had this awful realization that Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ, and they had rejected him. This is the first thing the Spirit convicts a person of, is that this Jesus that they're hearing about is actually who he's hearing 
he's exactly who the person is telling him he is. If you've ever had this happen to you when you're reading the Bible and all of a sudden you have this, this sense that you actually know what this means and that it's true. You know, all of us, uh, there's things we don't know, but we don't know that we don't know. You know how that is? You, you know there are some things in your life you used to not know and you didn't even know you didn't know it. And then you can get to the place where you don't know, but you know that you don't know it. And then finally, the objective is you get to the place where you know, and you know that you know. And that's what happens when the Spirit causes the gospel to penetrate the heart. Now, it's fine to ask questions. I get clarification for for people to say, I don't get this. I don't understand what you're saying. Explain this to me. Okay, so what does this mean and this mean? Well, it says in, in, in John, in the upper room, John 16, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to send the Spirit. And when the Spirit came, he would convict the world of sin and righteousness of ju- and judgment. Of sin because they don't believe on me. And this is what they felt. They were feeling the convicting work of the Spirit that they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And he truly was the Messiah. He was the Lord and the Christ that the gospel says that he is because the spirit convicted their hearts. Now there's a sequence here. It says literally when they heard, they were pierced to the heart. When they heard. When the spirit finally opened their eyes and their ears, their spiritual ears, and they heard the message, it penetrated their hearts. So when the gospel comes in power, it pierces the hearts of those who are hearing it and they realize that rejecting Christ is a critical sin. And that's what Jesus said in John 16. They would know that to continue in unbelief concerning Jesus Christ is a critical sin. And so what we need, of course, is a spirit to attend our sharing of the gospel and bring the truth of the gospel to bear on the hearts of people. There's a second thing that he mentions, and that is it emboldens the mouths of the witnesses based upon this. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point. You remember the apostle Peter when Jesus was arrested and was being abused and prepared for crucifixion. What was Peter doing? Peter was denying him. They were asking him, you're one of his disciples, And he said no, and then he said no again, and then he said no again. I don't even know him. And now here is Peter, and the reason he was doing that was because of his fear of men. And now here he is on the day of Pentecost, and he stands up, and he begins to boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. What's happened? The Spirit's been poured out, and he's been baptized in the Spirit. He's been clothed with power from on high. And so it says, he says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That's really a summary of everything that's going to take place from the ascension of Christ until his second coming, since he's poured out the Spirit. The gospel is going to go out around the world. It's going out around the world right now. It's going out to every people group. We know this because Revelation says that God is going to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so the gospel continues to go out. 
And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he preached with full conviction. Have you ever had problems sharing the gospel sometime and in your mind you're wondering, if does this sound, does this sound like a, a, something unbelievable? They're not going to believe this. When you have full conviction, when the Spirit of God assures your heart, when the gospel comes to power to you as you're sharing it, it's going to come in power to the person who's hearing it. The same Spirit that's convict their heart will convict your heart as you share the gospel, as you share this message of salvation in Christ Jesus. And so he could speak boldly, be saved from this twisted generation that has denied the Lord Jesus Christ. So like Paul, he had full conviction. There's, there's two primary words in the New Testament for preacher. And a lot of times when we talk about preachers, we all think of somebody standing like I'm doing right now and proclaiming to this whole group. There's two different words for preacher. One of them, uh, kerux, means someone who has an official message to bring to the people, and he comes in authority, the authority of the ruler of the people. There's another word, though, that speaks of someone who brings good news, Good news. How beautiful are the feet of him? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news? And what he's talking about there is a guy who's been out in battle and the army's winning. And so he runs back to the headquarters to say, we're winning the battle. That's good news. Well, what you are as a believer, as a witness, because you have the Holy Spirit and therefore you're a witness... If you have any questions about whether or not you have the Holy Spirit, all you got to do is look at Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, and it will tell you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. And so you are a witness. And as you bring good news to people, the Spirit of God can take that good news and cause it to penetrate the hearts of people, and he can give you boldness in, te- in telling it. Uh, I've told you about this couple that live up in Reno that want to go to West Africa. They have three, in fact, they have three little children and she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby in about four months. And they want to go to a West African country that I've never even heard of before. And it's a Muslim country. It's illegal to go there and witness. But they're just convinced that God wants them to go there with this relief uh, group and, and be able to have a witness personally with people there. And you know why? Because the Spirit of God has filled their heart with confidence in the gospel. That people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear about this Jesus. Now, they need to, they need to understand the story of the Bible. I carry in the front of my Bible this little summary of the story of the Bible. And I'm going to read it to you. It's real quick. God created the world and created us to serve and enjoy him and the world he has made. But human beings turned away from him. They turned away from serving him and they sinned and marred themselves in creation. Nevertheless, God promised to not abandon them. Though it was his perfect right to abandon them. But he promised not to abandon them, but to rescue them. Despite the guilt and condemnation they were under and despite their incurably flawed hearts and character to this First, God called out one family in the world to know him and serve him. One family, Abraham. Then he grew that family into a nation, Israel. And he entered into a binding personal covenant relationship with them and gave them his law to guide their lives, the promise of blessing if they obeyed it, and a system of offerings and sacrifices to deal with their sins and failures. 
However, human nature is so disordered and sinful as a result of the fall that despite all these privileges and centuries of God's patience, even his covenant people, that is Israel, who had received the law, promises, and sacrifices, turned away and rejected him. It looked hopeless for the human race. But God became flesh, and he entered the world of time, space, and history. He lived a perfect life in the person of Jesus Christ, but then he went to the cross to die. When he was raised from the dead, it was revealed that he had come to fulfill the law with his perfect life, to offer the final sacrifice, taking the curse that we deserved, and thereby securing the promised blessings for us by free grace. Now those who believe in him are united with God despite our sin, and this changes the people of God from a single nation state into a new international multi-ethnic fellowship of believers in every nation and culture. You can go anywhere in the world and worship with believers. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? 19 people on the day of Pentecost, or I mean 120 people on the day of Pentecost, and now there's, by some estimates, 2 billion people who've heard the gospel and responded in faith. Now we serve him and our neighbor as we wait and hope for Jesus to return and renew all creation, uh, sweeping away death and all suffering. You know what that is? That's the story of the Bible. And the story of Jesus Christ is right in the heart of the entire message of the Bible. And so as you read the Bible, you find him everywhere because he is the chief character of this story. And when we share the gospel with people, we need to understand it. Not that you have to tell them all those things, but you need to understand it in your own head where Jesus fits in this glorious story. This good news of a God who stubbornly loved us when we turned our back on him. And so... Peter tells them what they should do when they ask him, what should I do? If somebody were to ask you, uh, what should I do to become a Christian? I don't want to, I've told you about this before. I was in a class at church I was visiting, and this lady was listening to everything that was being said. She was a visitor, and she said, you know, I've, I've been kind of wanting to become a Christian. What do I have to do to become a Christian? And there was this silence, just like right now. And nobody knew what to say to her. Would you know what to say to a person if you told them the gospel and they said, well, then what should I do? Well, Peter basically says, repent and be baptized. What does he mean by that? Well, repentance is turning from your false God to the true and living God. And being baptized is saying, I'm going to submit to his authority. I'm going to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And every time a person is baptized in the name of Jesus, they're making a public proclamation that Jesus is their Lord. He is the one they have come to trust in completely, the one who died for them and was buried and rose again. And so he tells them what to do. And then he gives them a promise in the last part of verse 38 down through verse 39. This is a divine promise. It's a glorious promise. Look at verse 38. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason he said that, you typically wouldn't say that to a person. If you believe you'll receive the Spirit, it's true. But typically, they're not even thinking in those terms. But the Jews were, because the Jews had been promised there was a day coming when God was going to give them a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit had been poured out. And he says, for the promise is for you 
and your children for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I love the fact that God calls people. God calls people, and sometimes he does it in the most surprising ways when you're, it's totally unexpected. Sometimes God calls people when they're not even anticipating or thinking about the living God and their relationship with him, and all of a sudden their eyes are opened and they see the truth of who Christ is. And they turn to him in faith. And so Romans chapter 8, it says, all those that he calls are justified. He's talking about the fact that when God calls, a person responds in faith. And they're made right with God. There's one last thing here that says happens when the gospel comes in power. And that is it reaches the ears of the lost sheep. Listen to this. So then, those who had received his word, they had welcomed it. They had latched onto it. They received it as true. They were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, when I say that these are the lost sheep, this is why. Because in, in John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees, basically, and they're rejecting him, and they're mocking him. And Jesus said to them, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep. Now, this was a common metaphor they understood. A shepherd was someone who had a flock, and that flock loved him, and he loved the flock. And they responded to his voice. And so he says, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. How can you tell someone is one of his sheep that has come to put their faith in him? They follow him. Remember, this was the first words Jesus said to his disciples, those who became his disciples. They came, they came and they were kind of following him, and he turned, and this is the first thing that Jesus asked in, in the gospel is, what do you want? What if Jesus was to say that to you? What do you want? And then he tells them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll give you something in life worth living for. <laughs> and they followed him, and they became his disciples, and one of them is preaching this message here in Acts chapter 2. Now, what, what happens is that when they do respond, the proof that they were Christ's sheep on the day of Pentecost as Peter preached this message was, first of all, they received the word. In verse 41, they received the word. They received the gospel. And then secondly, they obeyed the command. They repented and believed. Don't ever be afraid when you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they said, wow, that's amazing. What should I do? Don't be afraid to tell them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And it, it made perfect sense to them when he said, repent and be baptized. They knew exactly what he meant. Turn from your false God and worship the true and living God and come under his authority. Put yourself under his authority. The church and the kingdom of God are not exactly synonyms. They're not talking about exactly the same thing, but they're closely related. And it's this, that the church are the people who have entered into the kingdom. Those of us who follow Christ, we are in the kingdom of God. We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, and we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. 
We live under the reign of Christ. Some people uh, get that mixed up because uh, we're so afraid of legalism that we're afraid it would be legalistic for us to say we're going to obey Christ. That's not legalism. Let me give you a definition of legalism. This is legalism. The view that we can put God in our debt and procure his blessings with our goodness. That's legalism. Antinomianism is just the opposite extreme, but it's the same kind of problem. And that is the idea that we can relate to God without obeying his word and his commands. You can't. If you don't obey Christ, you have no relationship with him. Because he's Lord. He's Lord. And therefore, if I've truly believed on him, then I want to obey his commandments. I want to express, and in John chapter 14 in the upper room, Jesus makes it very clear. He says that, uh, that the gospel transforms obedience of God's commands from a legalistic means of acquiring salvation to a loving response to having received salvation. Why do I obey Christ? Because I am so grateful that he saved me. Ryan and I were talking the other day about why we still have these flaws, these deep, profound, sinful flaws in our lives. Why does God, why didn't he get rid of all that stuff? Why doesn't God make you absolutely pure in your heart so that you never even think sinful thoughts? Why does he allow you to be who you are and what you are? And we came to the conclusion is because he wants us to continue to trust him and trust him only. The only means of my salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if it's based on my obedience, if it's based on my performance, I'm dead in the water. But if it's based on what Christ has accomplished, what Christ has done for me, then I can have absolute assurance. And so I can trust him. I heard something this week that really blessed my heart. It was uh, just an offhanded remark this guy made I was listening to, and he said, uh, what spirit filling is, is when the Holy Spirit fills your heart with the Father's love. And you might say, well, where would you get that? Out of the Bible? Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What is he talking about? Why do people get drunk with wine? I'm not saying, why do you drink wine? But why do, you, why do people get drunk with wine? Intentionally get drunk. It's medication, right? It's medication for the pain that you feel on the inside. But Paul says, no, that, that's just dissipation. That will just destroy your life. Be filled with the Spirit. But then in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul explains how the Spirit fills the heart of a believer. What does he do? I used to always say spirit filling is when you're living under the when you're when the spirit's empowering you. When you're living under the control of the spirit. I've never lived one day in my life that I could say all day long 24 hours I was living under the control of the spirit. I never did one thing that was not a result of his controlling my life. I've never lived a day like that. I might get fired fired tomorrow but that's just the truth. Spirit filling, according to Paul in Romans 5, 5, I believe is what he's talking about. He says, when you're going through trials, that as tribulation, he says, we, re, we exult in tribulation because we know something. We know that tribulation works endurance, and endurance works proven character, and proven character produces hope. And he says, in this hope, the hope that you attain, the hope that you receive as you're going through trials as you're trusting Christ, 
will never shame you. And this is why I get this, because the Holy Spirit has flooded your heart with the love of God, the love of the Father. And he goes on the next few verses to make it crystal clear. He's talking about God's love for you, not your love for God. Your love for God's great. It's wonderful, but it's nothing like God's love for you. And so he says what the Spirit does, and he does it through trials. He does it through tribulation. Somebody asked me the other day that they had heard John Piper say, all Christians are going to suffer, and that disturbed them. And I thought, yes. Not only are all Christians going to suffer, but I've never met a Christian who hasn't suffered. Have you? We're going to suffer tribulation, but God does something wonderful in tribulation. He fills our hearts with a sense of the Father's love for us. That's what controls the heart, you see? And so when the gospel comes in power to me every day, it should, it's, it, he fills my heart with a sense, with an awareness of his love for me and the gospel message. And then he can use me to bring the, the gospel in power to others. So that's what I need. I need the gospel to come to me in power every day. So that when he gives me opportunity to share the gospel with somebody else, it's going to come in power to them by the Holy Spirit who fills my heart with an awareness of the Father's love for me. You can tell people who are dominated by a heart filled by the Spirit concerning the Father's love for them. It's really easy. Have a 10-minute conversation and you can tell if that's happening in their lives. This last thing that he reaches the ears of the lost sheep is, is shown in these four, verses 41 and 42. They receive the word, that is the gospel. That, that is the, what that means when rece- received, they welcome it and they embrace it. And then secondly, verse 40, later in verse 41, he says, they obeyed the command. They repented and they believed. And then third, they followed the shepherd. That is, they were listening to the shepherd's voice. They were listening to the shepherd's voice. Now, it's really interesting how he describes this. He says, in their corporate life, as this group of believers, there's 3,000. All of a sudden, they had a little church like ours, and now they've got a mega church. All of a sudden, 3,000 people. And he says what happened is that they, they continued in the apostles' teaching. And like I say, it wasn't they didn't have any books. There was no New Testament. They were listening to the apostles preach from the Old Testament about the reality of who Christ is. He's a fulfillment of all these promises. And so they listened to the apostles teach, and they talked to each other about it. That's a mark of people who have responded to the gospel and are the sheep of Jesus Christ. The sheep of Christ talk to each other about Christ. And you say, well, well, then what's wrong with me? Well, you need to repent and start talking to fellow believers about Christ. Malachi says that Jesus, that the Father listens into our conversations with each other. And in fact, it actually says he takes note of them. He puts it in an old book. I think that's a metaphor, but isn't that wonderful? That he listens to our conversations with each other about Christ. He's overhearing what we're saying about the Son. And God wants us to do that very thing. And so it's centered in the apostles' teaching, but then it flowed out into a life of fellowship. They were in each other's homes all the time. Jesus has given us a pattern for discipleship. It's really simple. How did Jesus make disciples? 
Well, he said, follow me. And they followed him and they lived with him for three and a half years. They were together all the time. Now, I don't think you have to live in the same house, but you have to, it has to be life on life. It's only when we're together, when we're sharing life, when you can see what the person that is discipling you is doing and how he responds to life, and then he can see how you're responding to life. And the second thing was it was in community. It was life in community because there was, now it's really important for us. Jesus was a perfect disciple maker. He could have done it one-on-one. But you and I can't do that, and the reason is we've got too many flaws. So what we need is a community of disciples so that we can see how God works in the lives of people, other people. And then the third thing is that it was life in on mission. It was life. Jesus led them to follow him as he fulfilled the mission that the Father had given him to take the gospel and to go to the cross. And so they followed this example. It is centered in the apostles' teaching. It flowed out into a life of fellowship. And then corporate worship. They worshiped together. They broke bread together, and they worshiped God together. Not in a building like this. Sometimes in the, t- in the temple, they would gather together as a large group. But most of the time, it was from house to house. They were with each other in their homes. So it centers in the Lord's table. They broke bread from house to house which is talking about the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, because it's worship. And it flows out into a life of prayer. They prayed together. I'm really convicted about something about prayer, and that is that um, because we're kind of, I hate to use this word, but it's, I have to say it's really true. We are anti-supernaturalistic. Most of us have no expectation that God ever do anything supernatural. And so sometimes I get these prayer requests all the time. So do you, probably, if you're on the prayer chain, for example. Somebody calls you and says, hey, uh, so-and-so is in the hospital having a real struggle. Uh, pray for them. And you know what? And in fact, sometimes we even fill that out a little bit. Pray that the doctors will have wisdom and skill to treat this. That's Okay. But, but why do we have such a hard time just saying, God, raise them up, heal them, do something supernatural for your glory, raise this person up, save this person's child that seems unsavable, give them a job today, meet their need, give me enough money to help them. And what I'm convicted about is that I... I'm not, a, I'm not a charismatic, and I'm not, um, I'm not saying that I'm expecting to see signs and wonders. What I'm saying is it bothers me that I don't even ask God for anything supernatural. I just pray that things would work out, you know, <laughs> just that they would work out. And we could say, wow, that praise the Lord, everything worked out. And so it's so rare that we expect God to do something truly supernatural, to step into a situation and shake these people in such a way that you see them totally changed. And no, wouldn't you like to see God do something that you couldn't attribute to anything else but God? You couldn't say, it's really wonderful how that worked out. What it, was just, it was just so clearly the God of the universe who steps in and does something glorious in a person's life. And... I wonder why, why don't I have enough faith even to ask for it? Just to ask that God would do it. 
when Steve Fernandez got the brain tumor and uh, Phil Howard and I went and, and had lunch with him and talked to him and, and he wanted to let us know that he didn't want us to pray that he would be healed. It wasn't because he didn't believe God could heal him. He said, pray that Christ would be honored and glorified in this, in this process I'm going through. And he died in just a matter of no time. But he says, what I want God to do is something supernatural. I want him to save people through this. I want him to be glorified. I want Christ to be glorified through this situation. That's supernatural. I mean, we're all living in a post-Christian culture. You understand that, right? We're living in a post-Christian culture. The church is no longer, you know, little individual Christian stores around, scattered around cities where we... We, uh, you know, we have Christian goods to give you. Now, we're on mission in this world, and we're in a hostile environment. We're supposed to be manifesting the presence of Christ in our lives, in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the way we love each other, so that when people come into our midst, they could see the gospel being validated in the way we love each other, the way we treat each other. Man, most of us have been more heard by Christians than than non-Christians, haven't we? (laughs) Now, sometimes it's because we need it. Somebody needs to tell us the truth. Everybody else lies to us, and a Christian says, you know what your problem is? And we go, no, I don't want to (laughs) know. I don't want to know what my problem is. Well, we notice something. At this period of time in history... When they were continuing the apostles' doctrine, it was verbal only. They didn't have anything in writing. But they didn't have Old Testament scrolls to carry around. Have you ever seen somebody carry a scroll? If you've ever gone to a Messianic uh, church, for example, and they have the scrolls from the Old Testament, you couldn't carry those things around. You're too used to carrying an iPhone. (laughs) These things were massive. They didn't carry scrolls around. So they didn't have Bibles. How many Bibles do you have? I've got probably 35 Bibles. I got, a, I got 10 Bibles on my iPhone and my iPad and my computers. They didn't have that. It was all verbal. I mean, I just stop and think about this. What if everything you knew about God, you received by the hearing of the ear? You heard the message from the apostles. That's why Jesus promised the apostles that he would cause, when he gave them the Spirit, the Spirit would cause them to remember everything he taught and lead them into all the truth and, and show them things to come. And so the apostles are teaching and preaching. Now, if another 10 years or so, and they begin to write letters that we now have in the New Testament. But when it started, when we see this point here, it's verbal only. They listened intently, they hungered deeply, and they shared enthusiastically. They talked about it. They gathered in groups. Why would we do that now? I have a Bible. I don't need to meet with you and talk to you. I don't need to hear what you say about Jesus. I got, a, I got all these Bibles, and I got my computer. I go sit in my easy chair and put my computer in my lap and read the Bible. But God planned it so that they would share their lives with each other and what the Spirit of God was showing them. They were sharing it with one another. They were getting all kinds of nuggets. I mean, these things, that these pearls that they were receiving about the person of Christ, and so they would tell one another. Did you hear what Peter said? 
Did you hear what, what Andrew said? Did you hear what James said about Jesus? And that's the way the conversations went. Today, we have written and verbal. We get up here and talk to you every week, and you can hear sermons. You can hear thousands of sermons every week online. It's written and verbal. You can hear it, and you can read it. So it's so available. It's so incredibly available. I wake up, and I got this bad habit of waking up in the middle of the night. I, I don't know what it is, but I... So I get up, and I just assume, I assume that God wants to show me something. And so I get up and, and sit down and open my Bible and begin to look. Sometimes I'm opening my Bible on my computer. And I'm wondering what he wants to speak to me. One of the dangers we have today is because we have such free access. It's a wonderful privilege and advantage, but there's also a danger because it's always available. We take it for granted. We become complacent. We're too busy right now. I'll guarantee you, those believers in the first century memorize a lot more Bible than we do because they needed to. They wanted it in their heart. Now we have the one-minute Bible, the dramatized Bible, video productions. I bought the book of Acts the other day. Everywhere in the NIV is spoken in this as they... You know, it's a movie of a video of the book of Acts. It ain't nothing like reading the Bible. Or talking to a fellow believer about the word. What is God showing you? What's God doing in your life? If somebody said that to you, somebody this morning said to you, hey, what's God doing in your life? Would that offend you? We had a guy uh, back in about 70, 1972. <laughs> Some of you weren't born then, huh? 1972, Valley Bible Church. I remember Steve Fernandez when he was just a 22-year-old. And, and just, uh, he's, Steve was, if you never knew him, he was so intense and so passionate. It'd drive you crazy. And he, he, told, he asked the guy, he says, what's God doing in your life? And the guy came to us and said, I'm not coming back to this church. I don't like it when somebody's trying to get into my business. And this young punk comes up and asks me, what's God doing in my life? Well, see, that guy didn't understand the nature of the church of Jesus Christ. So we need to be careful because we have all these wonderful advantages, but it's also a danger. Why, why should I talk to anybody about Christ when I can read my 15 or 20 Bibles or listening to all my tapes or my, you remember what tapes are? Uh, all my uh, digital recordings. Now, so when the gospel comes in power, it pierces the hearts of the listeners, it emboldens the mouths of witnesses, and it reaches the ears of the lost sheep, and they turn to Christ. Has the gospel come in power to you? I think a better question is, is the gospel coming in power to you right now? And is it coming to power in others through you? Is God using you to bring the gospel in power? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit. If you're unaware of that, and I don't mean unaware of it theologically, I mean unaware of it uh, experientially. If you're not aware of the Spirit's working in your life, that ain't normal. That's not normal. 
It isn't normal for you to live the Christian life and never be aware of the Spirit's working and is moving in your heart and life. For example, there's times when He moves you at the very deepest level of your heart when you hear the truth about Christ that somebody's talking to you about. And so we should ask the Lord this year in 2016 that the gospel would be coming in power to our lives every day so that it could be coming through us every day. In Romans 8 9, Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, and he says, And you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since it is true that the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, it does not belong to him. So you have resident in you the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who makes you a witness, and he is the one who can bring the gospel and power through you. He can use you to bring the gospel, and he can bring the gospel and power through you. And I pray that's exactly what we'll see happen in 2016, is we'll see the power coming in gospel through us to others. Because it's wonderful when it comes in power to you, when the Spirit is filling you, when He's filling your heart with an awareness of the Father's love, and you can't help but talk about it. All of you are really excited about something. Maybe it's the Raiders or the Warriors. I have all kinds of people talk to me about Steph Curry. They know all about him. Do you know about Jesus? Do you know what has been revealed about Jesus? That's the good news, glorious news. So let me pray for you. Our Father, I confess to you that I desperately need the Spirit of God to come in power in my life. I desperately need for him to cause the gospel to come to me and then through me to others. And I know that all of us are in the same boat. We need the Spirit of God to do a deep and powerful work in us and through us to others. We long to be your mouthpieces because that's what you have sent us to do. We are on mission to do that and to be that. So we pray that we'd be faithful this year, empowered by the Spirit, that you could use us to bring this word of hearing, the word that people should hear and must hear in order to be saved. We pray that you would use us as instruments in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.